0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LeBlanc. The epidemiologist Catherine Walter is part of a team studying the tuberculosis epidemic in Brazil and Paraguay. That's an outbreak that is particularly prevalent in the imprisoned populations of those two nations, where prison time comes with an almost 100-fold increase in the risk of contracting TB. But even though Walter knew a lot about how TB spreads in prison, she was shocked when she learned about a TB outbreak here in the United States, in the Washington state prison system. Walter wrote about that outbreak in a long-form feature that was published in The Nation in January of this year. And that's when she first caught my attention because, and I mean this with a lot of respect for other researchers, they don't usually write this way. Walter's piece was authoritatively academic, but it was also aesthetically journalistic. It was narrative and investigative and explosive in its revelations that the Washington outbreak may have been the product of a practice of shuttling inmates from prison to prison to prevent them from making effective complaints. Eight months later, I saw Walter's name again above another article in The Nation. But even though I recognized her name, I had to double-check to make sure I wasn't confusing her with someone else, because that article wasn't about epidemiology per se. It was really about ecology, specifically about the ecology of the Great Salt Lake. Walter was writing about something quite a bit farther flung from her field, but that authoritative tenor and passionate tone remained. Walter's latest article is titled, The Great Salt Lake is Becoming Too Salty to Support Life. Catherine Walter, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Matthew. I'm happy to be here.
0: You arrived in Salt Lake City relatively recently for a job at the University of Utah School of Medicine. What were your first impressions of Utah?
1: Great. Yes. I mean, Utah was never somewhere I expected to land, and there was <laughs> a lot of-, of <laughs> <laughs> None of us. None <laughs> um, And I was moving from the Bay Area, and there was a lot of hesitation about moving to this place that was so unknown and so unfamiliar. Um, but my first impressions were really just of awe and, um, and just so much excitement to get to explore this place surrounded by mountains.
0: The mountains are what everybody talks about, along with the really wide street. Did that throw you?
1: That definitely threw me. As a, a biker, as someone who's always bike commuted, this was the first time in my life I had to buy a car. Um, so that was definitely a shock. Um, and even though I have a car, I spend most of my time on on the bicycle still. And, yeah, getting getting to know my way across those wide roads, is it continues to be treacherous.
0: And if you're a bicyclist, you also get associated really quick with inversion. That's the phenomenon in which cold air gets caught inside the valley in between large weather systems and pollution accumulates. That's mostly a winter thing here in Salt Lake City. But increasingly, Salt Lake has also been prone to dust storms. And am I am I right to assume that that's... What drew your interest as an epidemiologist to the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake?
1: There were there were a lot of things that made me want to find out more about the Great Salt Lake. I mean, moving to Utah from California, that was one of the few things that I knew about Utah was, you know, last summer, this big New York Times piece came out talking about this ecological. The impending nuclear bomb. Exactly, exactly. And and so that was an article that my friends in the Bay Area, you know, they sort of hesitated in sending to me. They were like, OK, she, she committed to moving to Utah. Do we tell her? Do we not? And and of course they did. And it was terrifying. And as soon as I got here, I wanted to, to find out more about what was going on. Um, and, you know, from both a research perspective, you know, How is this affecting the public health, Um, but also on a personal level? You know, should I should I really be biking to campus every day? Is that really unhealthy? There's
0: a lot of epidemiology to be done about pollution in Utah, both inversion based pollution or inversion captured pollution. And also these dust increasing dust storms. But I, I'm curious because you said your interest was both research-based and personal, but your first foray into that subject was decidedly journalistic. Why was that?
1: I think it was because I, you know, the Great Salt Lake and this ecological and health catastrophe that that is unfolding right now, you know... It is such a vast problem, and and so many different people from such diverse disciplines and and walks of life are thinking about it and working on it. Um, and the Great Salt Lake is also a place. It's it's not just a place of catastrophe. It's also this extraordinarily beautiful ecosystem and place that humans have gone for centuries and centuries. And so, I you know, as a newcomer here, I just wanted to start learning about the lake, you know, broadly put. And so
0: you decided to write about this. And this didn't come from nowhere. You weren't like, hey, you know what, I'm going to do journalism. You have a sort of interesting academic background. Um, As an undergrad, you studied history and literature. I know you wrote a little bit for the Harvard Crimson when you were an undergraduate there. So you have this background in writing. Uh, journalistically, but then you took this hard turn into ecology and evolutionary biology and ultimately the epidemiology of microbial diseases like TB. What drove that shift?
1: Yes. I mean, I've since I was young, I've always been a uh, big reader. and um, and so literature will will always be a great love. Um, but as I was starting graduate school, I realized that what I wanted to study was the links between environmental change, climate change, habitat fragmentation, and and human health. And that that intersection really um, most interested me with respect to infectious diseases. Um, And so in graduate school, I was on the East Coast where Lyme disease was emerging, and that's what I decided to focus on for my dissertation work.
0: Was there something, I mean, did you you get bit by a tick? Did you know somebody? Like, what, what was the thing about Lyme disease that made you go, like, that's really interesting, and I want to study that as an epidemiologist?
1: Sure. Yeah, I grew up just outside New York City in the suburbs. Um, You know, we saw white-tailed deer in our backyard almost every day. And yes, I, I definitely had plenty of ticks. My dad had Lyme disease at one point. My little brother did it. You know, Lyme disease was something we were we were all talking about. And even though we were in New York, we weren't too far from Lyme, Connecticut, which was where the first cases of Lyme disease were described.
0: Wait, is that why it's called Lyme disease?
1: Exactly. Yes. In the 70s, the first, the first cluster of cases, which at the time were just thought to be arthritis, were, were documented there.
0: Talk to me about how you made the transition from Lyme disease to TB.
1: Yes, definitely. That, that was a big jump. But yeah, I was studying Lyme disease. And one of the ways that we were studying it was we were looking at the Lyme disease bacteria itself. And we were using the bacterial genomes as this record of, of spread. Um, And so I was interested in using those same tools for another public health, another applied public health question. And I got invited to join this fantastic team uh, led by Jason Andrews at Stanford and Julio Crota in Brazil looking at TB transmission in prisons.
0: Over the next few years, you did all this work on TB. um, And a lot of newly hired professors Like you are at the University of Utah, would be very focused on this primary line of research, right? Like, that's enough. That's a lot. What made you say, you know what? I'm going to dedicate a whole lot of time to this totally different topic. And I mean, like, I get you were new to Salt Lake. You were new to Utah. You wanted to investigate this really important part of the ecology, but you had to have been a little bit worried about like what your tenure committee was going to think about you taking this diversion.
1: Right, right. Um yes, and I've I've been learning about the lake not only for this piece and and also just to try to figure out um you know what <laughs> what I was doing here in in this new place, but but I was also interested in in the Great Salt Lake and in the epidemiology of these increasing dust events. What's
0: talk about what you learned about these increasing dust events. Uh, One of the very early guests we had on this program back in 2019 was Kevin Perry. Kevin does like a hundred interviews a year on the dust and uh, coming uh, aggravation of dust storms off of the drying Salt Lake. So he said a lot to a lot of people, and yet you pulled something from him that I hadn't heard from anyone else. And I don't recall him telling us on this program either. Can you talk about what Kevin Perry told you about his dad?
1: Oh, fantastic. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Kevin is a collaborator now at the U um, and, and also just has done such incredible work on the lake has probably spent more time on the exposed playa than anyone and is also just such an incredible science communicator and advocate. Um, And one of the things that he told me is that he thinks about talking about science and talking about the Great Salt Lake as, you know, he tries to tell it as if he would tell his dad who came up and was a janitor. and, And so he always thinks, could I tell this story to my dad?
0: You joined Perry on an expedition out to the salt flats around the Great Salt Lake to collect a sample of the dust out there. What did you learn about what is out there in that dust? And what was that experience like?
1: Yes. I mean, what a strange, strange place. The The Great Salt Lake in itself is is so exquisite. There's so much life there. And then, you know, the lake water is surrounded by this increasingly vast playa. And the playa, of course, and this is a lot of Kevin Perry's work, the playa is so variable. It looks different in different places. One of the places that we went, you know, it just looks like you are stepping onto another planet. And I was walking out onto the exposed, you know, cracked dust lake bed, following perry on his fat tire bicycle um yeah and it, it's completely bizarre and like no other field work that i've done before
0: i want to go back here to something that you said earlier which was you know your friends were a little bit nervous about talking to you about like this crazy decision that you made to move to utah you know which is you know, a, a toxic waste dump ra- waiting to happen um And you're out there on the playa and you see how easily that surface cracks. You see how fine that dust is. You feel the wind. You know how fast it moves, how quickly it can get to where you live in Salt Lake City. When you're out there, did you start going, man, what did I do? Why?
1: (laughs) Great question. Yeah, when I'm out there, I am... uh... I think I'm just so perplexed that I'm still on planet Earth that I don't have space to think about that. Um, but but I am I am terrified seeing you know the, exactly what you described, just the potential for that dust to directly be blown into people's backyards. And you know when you're driving north of Salt Lake and going to Antelope Island or going to visit the lake you're driving by all of these brand new developments too. So people are living closer and closer to the lake and people are moving here at, you know, faster and faster rates. So there is just an increasing population of people who are going to be affected by this dust.
0: There's another interesting intersection between your earlier work in this piece. That's the prison connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Perry was hired to do some sampling and analysis on whether the new Utah State Prison, which back then was being considered for a move to the south shores of the Great Salt Lake, whether it would be in a location that might be hazardous to prisoners' health. This was really interesting. Talk about what Perry told you.
1: Definitely, this this was horrifying to learn about. Um, but in 2013, there was a prison relocation committee um, commissioned by the Utah State Legislature. And Brad Wilson, who may likely replace Mitt Romney, was the head of the Prison Relocation Commission. And they were tasked with finding um, a new site for the prison, which at the time was located at Point of the Mountain, which is this highly coveted place for real estate development.
0: And a bunch of legislators uh, owned property around that would-be development if only the prison, that poor prison, could just somehow magically move somewhere else.
1: Exactly. So, So the old prison was, you know... In this site, this coveted site, they start looking for new sites. One of them, um, where the prison ultimately was moved and opened last summer, was at the southern shore of the Great Salt Lake. And, And Kevin Perry was tasked with investigating, would the dust from the lake cause outsized health impacts at that prison?
0: And Kevin took it upon himself to look not just at the dust from the Salt Lake, but also pollutants coming from the copper mining operation just a few miles to the west as well.
1: Right. And it turns out that this site where the, the prison is now located is not only at the southern shores of the Great Salt Lake, it's, it's not only exposed to lake dust, but it is also next to Kennecott Copper Mines. So this is the largest open pit mine in the world. And the copper mines also have these immense, what are called tailings piles. So they're, they're basically just refuse from the mine piles of dust. Um, and so Kevin tested those, those dust piles and found that, yes, they, they were not only potential sources of dust for people who were incarcerated in that prison site, but this dust also contained many metals that are toxic, are carcinogens for humans.
0: And Perry tells you they essentially, he turns in the report, and they essentially dropped it into the trash. They didn't care.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, so the findings of the atmospheric scientist who they commissioned to study this problem and this, you know, potential catastrophic health problem, they they ignored those findings. The prison relocation committee went ahead with the prison move, um, began building this prison, which you know exceeded all cost estimates and ended up costing over a billion dollars to U.S. taxpayers. And the prison, it's not only a dust problem. But it's also that it's located in a swamp. So there are mosquito infestations that have, you know, there have been reports of mosquito infestations since the prison opened its doors. Um, There's a proposed inland port there. There's tremendous pollution from the airport and highways. It's really this confluence of of all of these environmental justice issues. Let's
0: take... A diversion here. And I guess that pun wasn't intended, but it's a it's a decent one. Because the culprit most often pointed to for lake level reductions is diversion, human use of water, most of it for agriculture, a lot of it that's used for very water-thirsty crop, alfalfa, that in Utah is grown and then primarily sold abroad. But you've pointed out that there's there's some good news in the idea that The lake may be being most affected by human use, because if it is true that most of the lake's water loss is due to human overuse, then as Perry told you, the future of the Great Salt Lake is actually within our power to fix.
1: Yes, exactly. This is not a foregone conclusion. It's it's not decided by some external forces that the lake will dry up and that, you know, there will be ecosystem collapse and all of these human health consequences. This does not have to happen and I um, a vast team of scientists have have compiled the data that we need, so we we know exactly how much water we need to put in the lake to avert the lake drying
0: and presumably, then, if the lake bed area grows lake elevation grows and the lake bed area grows, that water covers up the cakey dust. and all of a sudden, we don't have to be quite so worried about an outcome like Owens Lake. Talk about Owens Lake.
1: Yes, definitely. Owens Lake um, is just an example of where we don't want to go as the Great Salt Lake. Owens Lake was a lake in California. The water was diverted um, by the LA Aqueduct. It was funneled to the city of Los Angeles, which was a very thirsty city at the time. Within, Within a few years after the LA Aqueduct was opened, Owens Lake was completely depleted and dried up, and it became one of the largest dust sources, and it continues to be one of the largest sources of dust in North America.
0: So on the other side of things is Mono Lake, which was sort of moving in the same direction, but there was an intervention.
1: Exactly. And the community came together, these incredible local advocates, Um, they raised their voices, they brought a series of cases to the California Supreme Court, and ultimately, the lake was protected. And it did not, um, it did not dry up. And it, you know, still exists today as this incredible ecological oasis um, in the Sierras.
0: And so Owens Lake and Mono Lake, you've talked about before as two alternative futures that could befall the Great Salt Lake.
1: Exactly. And, and Owens Lake, that's a future that we do not want to see. Um, it's also a completely different scale than the Great Salt Lake. Owens Lake, the saline lake that did dry up in California, it could fit into Farmington Bay. So that's just one of one of the Great Salt Lake's arms. And, and Owens Lake in itself causes so much dust pollution that LA taxpayers have had to fund I think the estimates are $1.5 billion of dust mitigation strategies. And, and all of those strategies, you know, of all those strategies, of all the engineering that they've tried, the best dust mitigation that they've found is just putting a little bit of water back onto this dry lake bed.
0: If we are not successful in doing that. The lake will continue to recede. As it continues to recede, it gets saltier and saltier. And there are even concerns that it will get too salty for the brine shrimp and the brine flies that live in it.
1: Even the brine flies and the brine shrimp have limits in terms of the salinity that they can survive in. And if those populations are to crash, then the ecologists are incredibly worried about the 10 million birds um, which rely on the Great Salt Lake either as a migratory stopover or as a breeding ground. Is your interest
0: in what's happening to the lake going to remain mainly personal and journalistic, or is it possible that we're going to start seeing this subject alongside tuberculosis and the journal articles that come from you and your collaborators?
1: Yes, we're with Kevin Perry and Daniel Young and many others at the U where we are hoping to study the Infectious disease impacts of increasingly frequent dust storms. So, so yes, I am definitely interested in the epidemiology. There's, there's just so much that's unknown, which is is terrifying.
0: You know, there's that old aphorism, "Ignorance is bliss." Uh, epidemiologists don't have that privilege, and epidemiologists <laughs> who study the things that may cause disease in their own backyards really don't have that privilege. So uh, talk to me about that. Like you've moved to this place. You are a relatively young researcher. You know, you have your whole life, your whole career ahead of you. I asked you earlier if it made you think twice, but I'm kind of, Curious as well how it makes you think about your future here or whether you will have a future here in Utah. You might you might go looking for cleaner pastures, so to speak
1: That's a great question. I uh yeah, I mean, I guess this is one of the things about living in the American West, right? It's it's what a what a an exquisite place to live. We're surrounded by so much beauty and also there is so much at stake because of climate change, because of water diversion, because of all of these different environmental risks. And living in the Bay Area was the same question that a lot of my friends were asking each other was, you know, how do do we continue living here with increasing fire seasons and and that risk? Um, and I don't know. I I guess that's one question. And then the other question is, is, you know, how do we work, you know, in solidarity with communities that we find ourselves in to to try to minimize the risk that is brought by these climate and and other environmental events?
0: That's Catherine Walter. She's an epidemiologist at the University of Utah and the writer of two articles in The Nation in the past year. The most recent one is titled, The Great Salt Lake is Becoming Too Salty to Support Life. Catherine Walter, thank you.
1: Thank you, Matthew.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts, and however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Catherine mentioned earlier the migratory birds and the risk they face if the lake continues to dry up. And if you want to learn more about that, Undisciplined collaborator Clarissa Casper's article in Salt Lake Magazine this month is a very good read. Our program is produced by Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.